And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Stephen Mansfield. He's a New York Times bestselling author and a popular speaker who coaches leaders worldwide. One of the many books he's written is The Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, Hero in a Time of Crisis. Stephen, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm looking forward to it. You know, the other day I was watching a documentary about Winston Churchill, and I don't really know much about him, so I watched it, and wow, was I impressed with this man. And so um, then I thought, well, I'd love to interview someone that's written about Winston Churchill. So I sent a quick note to our mutual friend, George Grant, and he recommended your name. So that's how we uh, got connected with you, Stephen. Thanks so much. Thank you. Absolutely. As we look at Winston Churchill, what really stands out about this, this man? Well, you know, to put it narrowly, Winston Churchill is best known as Prime Minister of England during some of its greatest crises, particularly around World War II. Um, but when you start paying attention to Churchill, you find that he's so vast that he lived such a long time and at such a tremendous time of change, um, and he was such a wordsmith that he really did leave an amazing legacy for leaders, for statesmen, uh, for people who want to be of impact, for people who even just uh, enjoy history and literature. So uh, I think what's, what's probably the most meaningful about Churchill for me um, is that he, he offered a world that was moving away from biblical truth, uh, the elements of that truth um, in terms of leadership, in terms of statecraft, and he really rallied the Western world uh, during World War II and led it to victory uh, out of that worldview. And so uh, I enjoy learning from his struggles. He was a man who suffered a great deal um, and, and overcame a great deal in his life. And that, is, that is inspiring to me. But the way he led um, the Western world during, during its great war with Nazism is what most, um, what most moves me. I think it's inspired entire generations of leaders since. Now, when he took over as prime minister, was he popular at the time with the people when he first took over? Well, people were relieved when he finally uh, became uh, prime minister. Uh, first, he became first lord of the admiralty, and then he became prime minister. Um, but he had, he had been through um, what he called the years of the locusts during the 1930s. Uh, Churchill had been um, in the government uh, during World War I, he was one of the primary architects of the Dardanelles disaster. People may remember when uh, the European powers tried to uh, contend with their enemies by attacking Turkey, uh, and 100, almost 100,000 British soldiers were killed. Um, so this was Churchill's idea. It was his baby. He was, he was sort of in dis- disrepute at that time. Um, and then during the 30s, he was the man most... Uh, writing warnings about the rise of Nazism. Well, people thought he was extreme. A lot of people in Parliament put him down. People in the press put him down. So he'd gone through about a decade of being, you know, disliked, criticized, um, ignored. Um, but people, people at the same time, as Nazism began to rise, started to realize, hey, this guy was telling us the truth the whole time. So by the time the king asked him to form a government, and of course that means he became prime minister, um, he was, uh, he was, people were looking to him as though he was the hero, the prophetic hero, uh, who had anticipated all of this. But, but that was only after 10 years of real loneliness and ostracization uh, that, that wounded him, frankly. Well, that seems to go along with his character of uh, not giving up. He has this 10-year period, and then um, it turns out that his insights are, are very applicable to the situation at hand. 
you know, Churchill said uh, that the person who's going to be a prophet, a person who's going to anticipate events, has to go into the wilderness. Uh, it, was, it was almost a biblical reference. You have mm. to go into the wilderness. You have to be apart from society. You have to be able to see it from a distance. Otherwise, you don't have the necessary perspective uh, to be able to anticipate events. And that's very much what happened to Churchill. He was almost banned from leadership in, in Britain during the 30s. And so he sat at his home in Chartwell and uh, watched what was going on in the world and worked with some of his close friends in, in politics and in, in, in publishing uh, to keep track of what was happening in Germany. And uh, I think he had perspective that others did not have. Um, and he, so he was able to serve his nation well. He seemed to stay in touch with the people. When the time came for uh, Germany and they started bombing London, um, he was out there right after the bombing, it seemed. Churchill knew how to embody the values he wanted people to absorb. He knew how to lead by, um, by being the change, so to speak, as we would say today. Um, if he wanted to inspire the British people, uh, he wouldn't just speak words. Uh, he would do things that would inspire them. For example, uh, when the Nazi planes were bombing London from the very beginning, Churchill used to go up on the tops of buildings and sit and watch the bombings and yell at the planes. And everybody in England knew this because the press would report it. As soon as the bombings were done, he'd get in his car and go right to where the bombs had fallen and encourage people and hold children and put his arm around grandmothers and so on. Um, the, the, you put that together with his speeches, with his kind of bulldog demeanor, with the jaunty cigar that sort of symbolized Britain, Britain's, you know, as long as Churchill's smoking a cigar, everything's going to be okay. Uh, that, that was a, not a trick of leadership. It was, it was a tactic. It was a strategy. It was something he knew how to do. Uh, rather than try to lead by talking, he led by example and by, by becoming a, a symbol, an embodiment of what he was urging people to live and that that's so, so he was courageous, he was bold, and he was very active on the streets, so to speak, all throughout the war. Did he uh, seem to have a sense of a calling in his life to this work? Yeah, he spoke a great deal about destiny. He believed that um, he was called, he believed he had, as when he took leadership um, just prior, just as World War II was starting, he said, I felt like I was walking with destiny. He said that also when he, uh, uh, when, the, you know, the, Pearl Harbor occurred, and the United States entered the war. Uh, you know, he said, I, I felt like I was walking with destiny. I slept the sleep of the safe and the saved. Um, and so Churchill's approach to his whole life of leadership was out, out of a foundation of believing that there was a God, that he would, that, that God had called Churchill to lead, uh, and that that God was intimately involved in history and in the affairs of the British nation. Mm. During the times that the bombs were falling on London, uh, the people, how would you describe their emotions and what they were going through? Well, to really understand that, we have to remember that uh, the United States did not suffer very much in World War I, but Britain was decimated. They lost a generation of their youth, uh, and it was often uh, not in the noblest ways, um, not uh, in, in ways that were, um, you know, where you, you could at least understand the value of those lives that were lost. You at least understood this. So you believed that the sacrifice was something uh, worth it. Um, instead, uh, people were chewed up, lives were destroyed by the, by the tens of thousands, uh, and many times in rather foolish endeavors. So there was an anti-war attitude. There was a peace movement that moved very much to the extreme after World War I. And so the, the British people were, were terrified of war, didn't want to have war, 
saw Churchill in the early 30s as a, as a warmonger. And, um, and so they had to be brought to it uh, rather, rather, you know, by, by the dire nature of events. So Churchill knew that he had these people who were war-weary. Uh, many of them, you know, many of the people he was talking to had lost family members in the Great Wars, they called it. And he knew he had to inspire them with a vision of victory. Uh, he had to help them understand the importance of their individual task. Uh, and he had to make sure to do what politicians had not done in World War I, and that was to explain why victory was so important, how it could be had, and how every sacrifice made, even of lives, uh, was worth it in this great battle. And so that's, I think he understood what was going on with the average person in the street. He understood the terror. He understood the fear. He understood the grief. Um, and he spoke to it and led the people uh, despite of those obst- in spite of those obstacles in their lives. Did, did the people in the street feel like um, they just couldn't keep going and they've had enough and, and they can't take it anymore? Yeah, that's very much the way it was. I mean, we have to understand uh, the British experience in World War II is far different from our American experience. I mean, bombs were dropping on their homes. Um, I'm not sure exactly where you are right now. I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, and I try to picture what it would be like if bombs had fallen for a year on Nashville in as concentrated a fashion as they did on London, um, you would have, um, you know, just, I mean, people had already suffered horribly during the First World War, as I say. They'd been brought slowly to embracing the need for war, and now they're just being pounded, just pounded. Um, So it wasn't as though, um, uh, you know, the war was something remote that was just coming over the radio. Uh, it was something that was actually, you know, might actually decimate your family sitting, laying in their beds at, n- at night. And so this was what I think was part of Churchill's greatness. He understood this. He understood the terror. He understood the cost. He understood the sacrifice. Um, and he was able to summon people to surmount it all. Did the people of that day, um, as Churchill led them and by example, did they try to go on their normal work day, it, it, assuming they're not part of... Um, training for the military. Uh, do they just try to keep going? Well, of course, that's, that's part of the, the, the hell of a war like this in your own homeland. Yeah, you own a bakery. You want to bake bread, let's say. You want to produce baked goods. Um, so you get up every day and you go to your store and you bake things and people come and buy them. But at any moment, bombs might fall and make it all, uh, it might destroy it all, it might kill your customers, it might kill you. So you're trying to go on with some sense of normal life in the face of unbelievable terror um, and in the face of the possibility that all might go away at any second. And mm. that's, that was part of what was working on the, the souls of the British people. Yeah, yeah. Churchill, you spoke of him as having a, almost a prophetic insight into the situation of the day and the, the threat of Nazism. Do you see any connection yourself uh, here with America, I mean, our our folks are certainly very war weary um, of conflicts, and yet um, some would say uh, we have Islamic terrorism at the door. Well, you, you've made a great parallel because one one of the things a leader is meant to do uh, is to see what others don't see, and to articulate it to those who whom he or she leads, and. Uh, you know, in, in World War II, Churchill looked at Nazism, and he didn't just say, you know, these are nasty Germans and we need to defeat them. He said, this is darkest paganism. Mm. This, this, is, this is evil. The Christian nations need to arise and carry us to a new day of broad, sunlit uplands, to use this phrase. Mm. 
point was that he redefined what it was. Um, part of our problem, as, as I think you're hinting at, and I certainly agree, uh, today is that we do not have leaders who identify our conflict with uh, Islamic terrorism as, as what it is. It's that nobody has stood up and said this is a, a war between a free people and, uh, you know, an oppressive system or an oppressive religion or some oppressive extreme mm-hmm. edge of that religion. It hasn't been defined for us. Um, and so we don't have Churchillian leaders for the most part today, but that's what Churchill did for the British people. Uh, he defined the war in terms they could understand. Most of them were church-going, most of them were Christians uh, in some form, even if they didn't, you know, weren't practicing, as they say. Uh, and so he framed the war in moral and spiritual terms in a way uh, that mobilized his generation, and we rarely see that. I think, I think there were, were some elements of that in Thatcher, there were some elements of that in Ronald Reagan, um, we've seen it up with a few people, but very few leaders uh, have the ability to see things in uh, defining terms and then articulate those terms to the people they lead. Mm, yeah, well put. Well, we certainly, I think, have a threat at our doorstep today, particularly when one of the nations out there says that they want to wipe Israel off the face of the map, and they've also made severe threats towards the United States. Well, and this is part of the, again, the greatness of Churchill, is that, you know, Churchill uh, scares some people today in that he, um, he believed that, look, if we're going to declare war and deal with, a, with, a, with an enemy, especially an enemy that is some representative of darkest paganism, as he called it, uh, you're going to have to kill people. You're going to have to be aggressive. You're going to have to man the ramparts. You're going to have to stand guard at your borders. Um, you're going to have to be as good as your word. And if he said... Listen, if you Germans cross that line right there, we're coming for you. Then mm-hmm. he did it, yes, um, and they did it well. And uh, that's that's what I think has lost the United States uh, some of its clout in the world these days. Is that we have leaders who, as Churchill himself said, "jaw jaw war war." We talk a lot about war, um, but we and we talk we, we make threats and we'll say silly things. The politicians say like, "This is unacceptable." Well, what does that mean? If you're not willing to act, you're just kind of scolding world leaders. And so it's obvious that Putin doesn't take us seriously. Many of the Islamic extremists don't take us seriously. And it's because we haven't matched deeds to words and dealt with them in the only language they understand. Mm. That sounds very jingoistic. It sounds very militaristic. But it's what Churchill understood and what most great leaders have understood. When you've got enemies in the world, uh, you've got to deal with them firmly or they'll just multiply. And I wonder how many people would have been saved from death regarding the London bombings if they had been more proactive towards the Nazis before those bombings began. Yeah, there's just no question that when Britain finally did uh, go to war, um, and by the way, great great scenes about this, great depiction of this in the movie The King's Speech that's been popular in recent years, um, but when you see England finally go to war, even though we don't talk about it very much, the fact is they were way behind in munitions and armaments and equipment and materiel and military training uh, because they had lived a little bit in the fantasy during the 1930s, as nations tend to do. And so, you know, we're coming out of Iraq and we're coming out of Afghanistan and Americans have kind of a bad taste in their mouths for war. Um, but but that's that cannot be the defining factor. We have to do what needs to be done uh, to protect our civilization and to uh, deal with our enemies firmly. Mm. Uh, it's not a it's not an option that we have, and I think all that our all that our fantasies do is delay uh, the ultimate realities and our preparation for them. Well, today, I'm talking with Stephen Mansfield, 
Uh, Stephen, you've written this book, The Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, Hero in a Time of Crisis. How would a listener go about getting a copy of that? Well, probably the best way is just to go on Amazon.com. Uh, that, that, that'll be the most rapid way. You can also go on my website, stephenmansfield.tv. Uh, you'll see the book reviewed and described, and there may even be a, a video or two connected to that book. And you'll also see all my other books and what else I'm, I, I do in this world. But stephenmansfield.tv would be the, the way after Amazon to, to get the book. Okay, we'll post those up on our website uh, after this broadcast airs and this becomes a podcast. Um, we'd like to uh, think a little bit more now about Winston Churchill in terms of um, how did he how did he act towards the people of that day? I don't know about you, but I've seen recent uh, politicians seem to try to divide the people. Maybe it's a divide-and-conquer mentality. I don't know what they're doing, but uh, whether it's race or whether it's economic position in life, uh, I see a lot of great dividers out there. How did Winston Churchill act towards his people? Well, it's a great question because, you know, while Churchill was in England, uh, calling for unity, blending the British people into a great force, summoning the lion spirit of the British people, all of those phrases were used. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, throughout the 30s and then into the, during the war years, was engaged in what we now call identity politics. He would uh, talk to a certain faction and get them complaining about how they were treated, and then he would propose legislation to benefit that particular faction. Uh, you know, farmers or um, blue-collar workers or northeastern blue-collar workers or people who worked, uh, you know, uh, in the south, the southwest uh, in, in some, some profession, lawyers or owners or things like that, cattlemen. So uh, he broke up the society, so to speak. He, he started this trend we now have of identity politics. And that, that, that's a big distinction to be, to be identified uh, in political leadership. You either can rally the nation to its best, by calling all the people to certainly embrace their distinctives, but, but, but be willing to uh, lay down, if necessary, their distinctives to be one people, or you can constantly appeal to each individual faction. And one of the things we're being overwhelmed with in our generation um, is how many different little groups you can have. You know, I'm, I'm uh, half Native American, Scottish, I'm six foot four feet tall, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, I might want to pull together the 15 people who are like me and be my, exert my own political pressure. Well, see, it just, it just never stops. You continue to have as many factions um, as there are people who have a certain characteristic about them. And that's, Churchill recognized that, but he said, look, we're not going to get anywhere if all we do is talk about our, our individual distinctives and how government can appeal to each one of those. What we need to do is call the nation to unify call people to their best, call them to sacrifice uh, for the larger good. And that, that was what distinguished his leadership. Mm. Yeah, it just reminds me of the uh, biblical perspective, that of unifying, certainly within the church. You know, we have the body of Christ, and it doesn't matter what race you're from or what your economic level is. But um, my hat's off to this Winston Churchill for not playing the game that FDR, as you point out, uh, played in terms of identity politics, and it, it's really healthy for a nation when it's the Winston Churchill approach. Well, exactly, and what what you want really is what we see as an example uh, in in Israel, the history of Israel. Uh, Israel was twelve tribes, as we read in our Old Testaments, and um, they occupied different parts of the Promised Land. They had different names, different leaders, even different styles. If we'd lived at that time and been amongst them, we would have identified different dress and everything. Um, at the same time, 
they came together, all the clans, all the tribes came together for war. Came, they fought together, and they, they farmed and, and lived uh, in, in, in a unity, but separately, very much like the federal system that our founding fathers designed in the United States. So when we, when we lived that way, when we allow people a degree of autonomy and individuality and even, to some extent, tribalism in the posit- positive sense of that, um, but, but then uh, have them identify with a national orientation in times of crisis, that's, that's what produces the best. That's what Churchill did, was summon them in that way. Uh, but if all we do is keep people a small and divided and never um, express the need for some kind of a common cause or, or national identity and, and a sacrifice for that, well, then we're going to end up with you know warring tribes like we often see, for example, in Afghanistan, where you can't get five people in a room to get anything done because they're all so clannish. And I think you're right. That is the genius of Churchill's leadership. He knew how to overcome those forces. Mm. Also, the, the people at an individual level, seems that if we could make some incremental improvements, it would be very wise so that we check our own hearts, you know, and say, do I hate my neighbor or do I love my neighbor like Christ has commanded? Well, and, and you're absolutely right. And that's also part of the role of leaders is to keep that uh, vision and that purpose uh, in front of us. Um, you know, people respond to calls to sacrifice. People respond to a great cause. Is there any great cause that captures your heart, captures my heart, mm. about uh, the United States today? Has any leader stood up and said, you know, let us go forward, even in a secular sense? Uh, you know, John F. Kennedy with the Peace Corps and what have you. At least, at least people were being moved uh, by great needs, the possibility of making a difference, of living uh, for large purposes, even if it was on a secular basis. Well, from a Christian perspective, of course, that's how we live all the time. We're all called to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ and for, the, for, the, for our wives, for our loved ones, and for the sake of reaching the world. Um, but, even, but political leadership is called upon to do the same thing. And if, if they don't, if they don't keep the vision and the sacrifice for the vision in front of people, well, uh, then, you know, as the scriptures say, people without a vision are, and the Hebrew word is cut loose, they're slack, they're, mm. they're loose rope without, uh, without any meaning or purpose or benefit. I wonder if uh, Winston Churchill were alive today, if he were to analyze the American landscape and the threats to our freedoms that we have, how he might advise us, uh, my own personal, as I kind of brace myself at times, you know, and think about possibilities and how I would respond to them um, very peacefully, of course, but uh, uh, protecting my family, and then beyond that, relatives protecting the church. Uh, I wonder what kind of advice a Winston Churchill would have for us today. Well, there's no question that he would be talking about courage. He would be talking about valor. Uh, he would be talking about destiny, these things that, that really put steel into our hearts. He would be very critical of the weakness of leadership, of the crass political nature of much of our leadership. Um, he would be very critical of the way that pastors have uh, allowed churches to go inward and to retreat from a redemptive role in the world. Um, but but I, think, sure, I think people actually could benefit a great deal from paying attention to Churchill. I don't know that I want to model my prayer life after him, but I think in terms of leadership, in terms of impact on society, uh, in terms of boldness and courage and living for a great cause, uh, there really is not a better example uh, anywhere in the pages of history. Well, this has been uh, enlightening. Uh, Thank you very much. Today our guest is Stephen Mansfield, 
a New York Times bestselling author and popular speaker. He's written many books, one of which is The Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, Hero in a Time of Crisis. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. Dear listener, this broadcast is up on our website as a podcast. Check us out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.